primary care knowledge boost, HIV. back to primary care knowledge based thank you for coming back and if you're a first time listener thank you for joining us today we're talking to dr marlon morace and yvonne richards about hiv with a focus on primary care and greater manchester yeah we thought it was a really interesting and important topic to cover and we're delighted that they could join us to talk about it so in the episode we cover what hiv is both scientifically and what it means to personally live with it the prevalence of hiv in greater manchester and when should we screen for it as well as the importance of talking about early diagnosis and a diagnosis with support so that it can be done in a way that will help people engage with it yeah um, we then go on to highlight the salient points around um, medications used um, for HIV um, and we hear from Yvonne about her personal journey with diagnosis and living with HIV. So we'll be back at the end of the episode to talk about our learning points as usual. Yep um, we hope you find it as um, interesting and informative as we did. So we normally kick off with asking everybody to introduce themselves for all the listeners to find out what you do um, and why you're here today. So um, if you want to kick us off, maybe Yvonne and introduce yourself and then Marlon. I'm Yvonne Richards. I'm a woman living with HIV. I currently volunteer at George House Trust. I run a project for women who were born in the UK about HIV and their experiences my goal is to ensure that every woman with a diagnosis ends up living their most positive life with HIV. Amazing. Hi, I'm Martha Moraes. I'm the GP champion for HIV for the City of Manchester. It's my role to try and increase awareness and improve the education around HIV for primary care physicians and associates within the area of the City of Manchester because Manchester is one of the key areas for HIV infections within the whole of the UK and Europe. Yes, which we'll hopefully talk about and touch on that because that's kind of what brought us to to recording this today. So uh, we thought we'd kick off with a very wide question. What is HIV? Do you want the scientific view or the personal view? I'd like both. both. Right. (laughs) I'll cover the scientific view and then I'm sure Yvonne will be able to fill us in on more of of the rest. But basically, HIV is a virus. It's what's known as a retrovirus. So a retrovirus is a virus which attaches itself to a host cell within the body and injects its RNA into that cell to make DNA within the cell. So as we go back to our old medical school lessons, it's a reverse of how a cell normally replicates because normally it uses the DNA to make RNA to replicate. This does it the other way around and uses the RNA to make DNA. The problem with HIV is the cell that it attaches itself to to make its DNA from its RNA is your own immune system cells. So when it attaches to these cells and replicates within these cells, those cells die because they basically become a factory for making the HIV. And the issue with that, therefore, if you keep killing the immune cells of the body, you have a decreased immunity within that body, leaving it susceptible for other diseases, other viruses, other bacteria and some cancers as well, uh, which can result from some of those. And that is the issue with HIV. It's not that the necessarily the HIV virus itself kills you, it's that it lowers your own body's immune system to the point where other things can then attack the body where it wouldn't normally with a healthy immune system and it's these things which then lead unfortunately to the morbidity and mortality from HIV. Yes, so what does that look like in a person then? Um, When I was diagnosed with HIV in 1998, the experience that people had at the time was that you would have two years to live and there were a lot of images of people dying Um, And the government put out the images of the tombstone and there was a lot of fear about HIV. And the obvious signs that were given at the time were the sarcomas, which were the black patches or the black blotches that people Mm -hmm. saw and a lot of wasting away. The problem with that image was that that is the only image that the public associated with HIV. So for me... I got the diagnosis and never in the time that I lived with HIV did I show any of those symptoms. 
So I lived for 20 years with HIV, slowly replicating and destroying my system because I didn't understand that it was a slow degenerative disease. And that's one of the things that I'm passionate about now. For me, I didn't understand that the increased thrush that I was experiencing was an HIV symptom. Um, Mm. I lost a lot of hair in the top of my head, didn't understand that was a symptom. My memory loss and then ultimately the fatigue that I experienced, which was extreme fatigue, which finally became the problem. And then towards the end, I just started dramatically losing weight. But it took 20 years. And in all that time, I continued working as normal and living as normal. And if you looked at me, and I still look at some of my photos, I looked fine. I didn't feel unwell. And in terms of my mental state, I had put HIV down as a mistake that had gone wrong. It was a bad test because I I almost waited two years and thought, well, I'm not dead yet. And if I haven't died, it couldn't be right. Mm. So carried on. And it wasn't until I was retested at my most sickest, my CD4 count by then was two. And then I got a second diagnosis and I had to then look back and revisit, okay, this really is happening to me. But it's about looking at the symptoms of HIV and putting it together like a jigsaw puzzle and starting to look for different markers on not just men, not just gay men, but it's on women a lot of the time. Um, Women can be tested late, men can be tested late, um, heterosexuals can be tested late because people are not looking in that particular group for these combination of symptoms to be HIV. Yeah, so there might be quite a few missed opportunities and thinking of it more as normalising the condition to think that any any member of the population could have it. And as we know, like Marlon said, it's prevalent in Manchester and there's definitely lots of learning opportunities here to kind of think about how we can pick it up um, earlier and how we can help people. We'll wait to go over the symptoms a bit more and some of the potential opportunities to pick it up earlier. Marlon, can you talk us through a bit first about kind of how prevalent is HIV in the UK and, and Manchester? So, um When we're talking about HIV prevalence in general, we like to use low, high and very high as our benchmarks. So um, anywhere that has a prevalence of over two per thousand is classed as high. Anywhere that has a prevalence of over five per thousand is classed as very high. So there's high over two, very high over five. The UK as a whole is 1.9 as per the latest gov.uk figures so it's just under that too but if we look at certain cities within the uk being predominantly london then brighton then manchester um manchester's is around six per thousand so it's a very high and um brighton and london are, up, are higher than those levels as well so they're classed as very high prevalence areas and that is an internationally recognized uh, figure what, what does that mean? Well, it basically means, according to the NICE HIV testing guidance, that we should be doing more testing, um, more routine testing, and be suspecting HIV infections in more people once you're in a very high or a high-risk area. So that means that people going for other blood tests may be getting HIV tests. People living in these high areas should be getting more HIV tests as part of their routine care, according to the National Institute of Clinical Excellence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it should be completely routine. And I know it's sort of coming in on some of the suggested things on when we're looking at blood tests that actually it's suggesting HIV for some panels and things like that. Yeah, and we've actually got some um, interesting stories, which we've seen in in secondary care, interesting cases. One was of a 73-year-old lady who was being intensively investigated for um, weight loss and blood dyscrasis by um, gastroenterologists and haematologists for about five years and this carried on and carried on and she had all these investigations and scans and bone marrow biopsies and so on and unfortunately this lady died and just before she died in the last few weeks before this she was actually 
diagnosed as HIV positive, but during all these investigations for five years, no one had done a HIV test on her. And that was the diagnosis. That is what had led to this. And generally what happens is the life cycle of the disease, as an average, it lasts around five years from contracting this to the CD4 count going low enough so you are actually having these symptoms and so on. So for about five years, it was a window period where she was having some slight symptoms and it was never picked up. Now you have some people, um, which Yvonne mentioned before, two years. So that's what's called a fast responder. So you have a fast responder who can find that they have the diagnosis and within two years, that is when they're having the symptoms. You can have slow responders. And this is some people who were diagnosed in the 80s and they were actually able to survive until an actual treatment was developed um, years later, 1996, and they had a really slow um, replication rate in these people and they're able to survive. But your average is around about five years um, in this group. So um, the other thing we saw though recently as a positive of this, because we added HIV, as to one of the routine investigations that you would do for someone with weight loss. We had a case of a heterosexual gentleman of a Pakistani background who presented with the same things. And this was a couple of years after this lady. And he was going to go for um, weight loss investigations, but his GP just did tick, tick the box that said weight loss and included all the investigations of which HIV was one of them. And the GP luckily didn't untick this box thinking, well, he doesn't need this. This is a married heterosexual man. Why would he need this? That was his diagnosis. So once he then went into treatment, within a few months, he had improved significantly. His CD4 count was still a bit low, but his viral load was undetectable at that stage. And then he actually then started to gain weight again and actually is now really, really healthy. So it just shows a difference in terms of because within a really high prevalence area, the first lady wasn't considered to be tested, a heterosexual 70-odd-year-old lady, never tested. But just because things have moved on and we've made it a routine investigation, this gentleman was offered the test and that was his diagnosis. And I just want to add to that, that there are lots of cases with the women that I deal with. Again, because there is an image of who who should be tested. And I think that kind of separation creates problems because you stop thinking it could happen to you. So I'm in a relationship with the the gentleman who transmitted it to me. It was a short-term relationship. We had sex once. It didn't work, but he left me with HIV. A lot of the women that I see were in long-term relationships. And so you're not only finding out you're HIV positive, but it throws up issues in your relationship. But if you'd have asked any of those women, do you need an HIV test? They would have been saying no. So you're asking the wrong questions because you're not even thinking they're in that category. So HIV shouldn't be seen as a how did you get it? But let's just test in case because the way it presents itself could be so many other things. And we start looking down every other route. And that notion that only certain people get it means that other people are not flagging it up or not thinking about it. But also, if it took 20 years to start showing in my body, who would ever think they had an STI or a sex, or you could have dealt with the STI, unticked the test for HIV, because we don't want to check for it. But instead, if we're all testing, if we're all checking, if it's put into the bag of all the things, we get tested, we know our status, we start looking after our bodies. But if we differentiate we're missing out on so many people. A lot of the women who test late, I'm also finding, are in their 50s and it's been in their system for a long time. They've been having issues with their bodies. They go to their doctors. They're given everything else, treat for thrush, treat for this, treat for that. HIV isn't put on. And so my argument is include rather than exclude. I think that's an extremely good point both of you have made there. And I think from the primary care point of view, personally, and from what I've seen in practices where I've worked, I still think that you're right, there is a divide in who gets offered HIV testing. 
based on historics and, and knowledge that people have had previously. And I think there's also probably, I would say, almost a fear about bringing up HIV testing with patients. You're almost scared to suggest doing it because I think you're afraid of the response you're going to get from patients. This leads on to one of the questions that we had about who do you decide who to test? When should we be doing HIV tests within primary care? When should it be coming up on our radar? Who should we be testing? There's some very clear guidelines around this. So there's a nice HIV testing guidelines. And as I stated, if you're in an area where there's more than two per thousand diagnoses, every new patient registering at a GP practice should be offered a HIV test. Every person being admitted to a hospital for any reason should be offered a HIV test. If you are working in any of these areas of Greater Manchester, of which only a few of them are less than two per thousand, it should be routine part of your investigation. So Blackpool, 4.5 per thousand. Um, Manchester, 6.21 per thousand. Rochdale, 2.1 per thousand. Trafford, 2.01 per thousand. Tameside, 2.07 per thousand. You see, it's Berry, 2.07 per thousand. Bolton, 2.02 per thousand. This means you should be offering it as a, as a routine test in these areas and make it routine so patients know to expect that. There's lots of posters available, there's lots of literature available, so you can make it um, obvious to your patient, this is what we do routinely, we're not singling you out, we're not accusing you of anything, it's just the fact that you live in an area where this is prevalent, therefore this should be something that we offer. And there are all the other things in terms of people being admitted to hospital, people going through A&E, but the one key one, which we should never miss, is anyone presenting with any index symptoms of HIV should be offered a test, regardless of their ethnic background, age, sexual orientation. They should be being offered them. Yeah. Can you talk us through the index symptoms? So there's some um, marked index symptoms. Um, so that's your disease modifying ones, which hopefully we're not going to be seeing. So that's things like TB infections, Kaposi's Sarkozy. And then there's some more subtle ones as well. Now, to go over those indicator conditions and symptoms, it's quite a long list, um, but I'll go through the main ones and I'll divide them into system-based. So um, respiratory, anyone with TB should be offered a HIV test because it's an indicator condition. And anyone with aspergillosis should be considered this test now. They offer it as routine in the aspergillosis clinic now. Few years ago they didn't but anyone presenting with a new bacterial pneumonia that's proven should be being offered one as well neurological um, a cerebral abscess can be a symptom dementia particularly dementia in a younger um, person with no other known risk factors there's a case history of a gentleman who presented with dementia in his 60s he, and he was get he was getting this dementia and no one even thought to offer him a hiv test because he was married and it was actually HIV that was the cause of his dementia. Um, so um, dementia in a person of a young age where you're not having any other risk factors, HIV can be a cause of this. Guillain-Barre, any space occupying lesion of an unknown cause. Leukoencephalopathy, meningitis, that's aseptic, aseptic encephalitis, peripheral neuropathy. It should be one of the routine things. We always all do B12, but how many of us do a HIV test? Um, it's, a, it's a known cause. Transverse myelitis. Dermatology. This is a key one. We, they actually had quite a few referrals to the HIV clinic from the dermatology clinic at Salford Royal. And this is people who had recalcitrant seborrheic dermatitis, which we can obviously understand because of the nature of the impaired immune system. But there's also people with severe recalcitrant psoriasis. So as these people were going to the dermatology clinic and before you would start methotrexate, you would do a HIV test. We've actually had quite a number of, re of people who have actually had positive HIV tests at that stage. Before they started methotrexate, they were put on antiretroviral therapies and their psoriasis improved. So there's obviously clearly an immune aspect to the psoriasis. Recurrent herpes zoster, particularly in young individuals. So we've seen this. Um, and I've seen this with quite a few of the positive speakers that I've worked with through George House Trust. Their first symptom was the fact that they got shingles a few times in their 20s or 30s through no other reason. So um, this is something to bear in mind, mm. uh, particularly palate zoster as well. So that's something to bear in mind. Oral candidiasis, 
recurrent mouth ulcers is one to bear in mind. We should always have, that should just be routine. You keep getting thrush. We often will do a, a HbA1c on these patients. We would get recurrent thrush. Well, why wouldn't we do a HIV test as well? Because it's, it's one of the other known common causes. Oral hairy leukoplakia, chronic uh, diarrhea of unknown cause, weight loss, Salmonella, Shigella and Campylobacter infection. Bearing in mind, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but um, Salmonella, Shigella and Campylobacter can be sexually transmitted diseases as well. Um, so basically anyone with any sexually transmitted disease should be offered a HIV test as well. So you're doing a smear test on someone, you might do some swabs, you get a chlamydia infection that comes back. Um, according to the Beaver guidance, so that's the British HIV Association guidance, we should be offering all these ladies or gentlemen, if we've done it for whatever reason, a HIV test. Hepatitis B and hepatitis C. We diagnose these quite a bit now in, in primary care when we're doing um, liver function test testing. So they should obviously be offered a HIV test. But actually on that note, if you have deranged liver function tests, we should be adding HIV to those tests as well. Hematology, thrombocytopenia, lymphopenia, neutropenia. We should be offering HIV tests for these things. Anyone with any cervical cancer in oncology, lung cancer, particularly anal cancer, seminomas, non-Hodgkin lymphoma, Hodgkin lymphoma, head and neck cancers, Castleman's disease, anal intraepithelial dysplasia, vaginal intraepithelial neoplasia, and the key one that we miss out quite a lot is anyone with cervical intraepithelial neoplasia, so CIN, grade two or above, according to the um, guidelines, should be being offered a HIV test. You cannot assume that this is being offered by the colposcopy clinic. There's actually a little bit of disagreement in the colposcopy cl clinics around. They know they should be offering the test because all of these ladies with CIN2 or above end up in their clinic. But some of them deem that the ladies are already too upset to offer them this on top. And actually, right. as GPs, if we know that they've been through and not been offered this test, we can offer it to yeah. them as well. And it could be that afterwards they've had the treatment they've come around a bit more we can offer it to them at that stage because I think it would be a double insult to this lady that she's had this thing which has been a lucky escape and been treated but we don't actually treat the underlying thing which has made it more apparent in the first place um, and then obviously genital urinary recurrent thrush and, and like I said any diagnosed STI so these are the index symptoms I think um, it's worth going through because there's quite a few there where it's like, oh yeah, yeah, TB, you know, the simple ones, but then things like peripheral neuropathy. Thanks for going through it. I know it's a big um, list. That's great. Yeah, that was really useful. And the key thing about it is make it a routine test. Every lady going through pregnancy is offered a HIV test. And that's been something that we've been doing for 20 something years. And it, everyone knows if you become pregnant, you get offered a HIV test. And it's just part of the, the, the normality of it. If you make a big thing about it as a GP, so now you've got these symptoms, what we're going to do is we're going to do a HIV test on you. But don't you worry if it's because, you know, with HIV test. Now, I know that you might not think, but you could, you know, you could go around the houses around it. But actually, if you just make a completely matter of fact thing, you present him with these symptoms. The normal test for these symptoms is blah, 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 blah. Um, we do the blood sugars, we do the thyroid, we do a HIV test, we do the kidney, we do the blah, blah, blah. You're just making it routine. The patients know to expect that. There's lots of posters available. There's lots of literature available. So you can make it um, obvious to your patient, this is what we do routinely. We're not singling you out. We're not accusing you of anything. It's just the fact that you live in an area where this is prevalent. Therefore, this should be something that we offer. And there are all the other things in terms of people being admitted to hospital, people going through A&E. But the one thing that we should never really miss is someone who's presenting with index symptoms. They should be offered a test. Remember that there is stigma and discrimination that goes alongside HIV. So it's a way of talking to someone in a general way so that they understand why you're testing. It's routine. It's part of our, I don't think it would relate to you, but let me check anyway. Knowing that even if it does relate to that person, it is still going to be a shock and you're going to have to be prepared and ready to support them at that point as well. But what you want is them comfortable enough 
to take the bloods and then you're prepared that if it comes up positive that you're able to support them afterwards. I went into shock, drove around for two hours in my car thinking I'm going to die. So it's huge and you have to, if you don't catch the patient or the person at that point, understanding the impact that a positive diagnosis will have on them, they can withdraw And so it's being prepared for that. And what system have you got in place to check that patient if it is positive? Do you have a practice nurse that is going to be on hand? If you don't have the time to check on that person, who's going to do it to make sure that they're well, that they're okay, that they are managing the diagnosis, should it be positive? Yeah, I think that's a massive side of it that we don't prepare for in general practice at all, is what to do with a positive result. Um, that can be um, managed quite well in certain areas. So basically, if you have a positive result, then um, a common thing that's done is the HIV clinics within the area um, will see that patient, if not the same day, normally within at least 48 hours or so on. So that positive result can be managed. Depending on the manpower, some of the HIV clinics can actually offer a nurse to come to your practice and help you give the diagnosis and particularly the practices running that are linked to, say, North Manchester General, HIV nurses will do that and actually will do the first appointment and take the next set of blood tests with the patients there and then in the practice for you, which would allow you to have that patient get straight into the treatment, know who's got to be seeing them. In terms of the the service that you said about, so if we've picked up a positive test within primary care and we can get them seen by the HIV service in, in, in most areas within that 24, 48 hours. What's the best way to refer into that? Um, it will depend in your area. Um, so for the City of Manchester, there's a referral form which you send in and there's an email address. So there's someone basically on that email address all day. So as soon as that comes in, they can sort that out. In other areas, you call the um, GU clinic in your local area and they would be able to sort that out so we have this thing where hiv is treated by two specialities and this way it can get confusing for gps if you're in an area that's covered by an infectious disease unit then the hiv care can come from the infectious disease unit if you're in an area that doesn't have cover by an infectious disease unit your hiv treatment will generally come from the gu medicine service in in this area because we have the disjunct to the fact that HIV treatment is covered by two training schemes, the GU medicine training scheme and the infectious disease training scheme. So say, for example, you are in City of Manchester and you're on that border between North Manchester or Manchester Royal Infirmary. You can either contact the local GU clinic at Hathersage or you can contact the North Manchester General Infectious Disease Unit. If you're somewhere like Wigan, for example, which we know you're, you're in Wigan, you've not got the local ID service around, then you can contact your local GU service. However, if you speak to the patient and the patient says, I actually want to go to North Manchester because I know it's the infectious disease area, then they would accept that referral for you as well. So, you know, there's patient choice within this. But the, my, my key thing to you about giving a positive diagnosis, if you get one, don't rush. Mm-hmm. You've got this positive result that's come in. You can either give that result well, or you can give that result hurried because you're in a panic. And that would affect with how that patient then interacts with the healthcare system for the rest of their journey. And what we want is we want that patient to have a positive interaction with the healthcare system for the rest of their journey to ensure that they have the full treatment that they that they need. So you get the result in. Like Yvonne says, 20 years she lived without having it treated. That's not what I'm recommending, by the way. We don't wait 20 years. Either would I. But the, the average is around five years. Even if the person does have a low CD4 count, if it takes us a few days to get that diagnosis to them because we've done it well, we've yes. got the nurses involved, we know when they're going to be able to be seen, we're able to give them all, all the information that we can give them at that time, let's take our time and do that rather than getting the thing and panicking. So what I would probably recommend is you get that positive result, you contact your local service and say, I've had this positive result. I've not given it to the patient yet. Can you give me some advice? 
when can I get the patient seen and so on? Because then when I contact the patient, I can give them all this advice. And then for you, it's actually a much easier consultation. And then the patient's got you on side because you've been able to put them in place really, really quickly. And um, they are then in touch really quickly with their um, secondary care provider. And I'd also say that message, Marlon, about you're not going to die is really important because time and time again, when I've spoken to someone, the shock is the fear. I'm dying. I haven't got long. So if you can reinforce the message that the meds work well and that you're going to have a long and healthy life, that the medication will support you and there are support services that we can put in place do give them the time to get their head round it. Check what support systems they've got upon getting the diagnosis and then gently check in on them. But if you rush the telling, that can put them into panic mode as well. So a sense of control from the clinician. We know what's going on. We know how to manage it and that you're looking at it from a clinical but also a person-centred perspective so that when you talk about the meds, you're going to talk about these are the support services, not only at the Hathersage, but remember some of these people are coming from beyond Greater Manchester to come to George House Trust. So checking out what is available in terms of support services in the local area or knowing of the national ones so that the patient will know, the person will know that there is support for them at every level. One of the key things there as well, given a positive HIV diagnosis to a patient, is surrounded by one of the best support and secondary care intervention mechanisms out of any diagnosis you will give any patient. At the point that you get that positive diagnosis in your box, you can actually contact the George House Trust for some emotional and social support for that patient. You can contact the secondary care provider to get that advice at that stage. So then when you're giving that diagnosis to the patient, they can get offered emotional support and fast intervention from the secondary care provider, normally within a few days of having that diagnosis. Now, I can't really think of many of the things we give a positive diagnosis for when we can tell them that you'll be on your treatment, possibly by the end of your first appointment in secondary care. And also there's this whole organisation that's around so you can speak to people who have the disease themselves, uh, help the people with the disease themselves and give you support through the initial diagnosis process. It's actually quite a positive diagnosis to, to give with the amount of support that we can give the patient at that stage. So we shouldn't be worried about doing the test because we think oh goodness what can we do it's actually really well supported mm, those are such powerful messages do you think there's any information about hiv medicines that we need to cover in this podcast that's aimed at primary care clinicians so to cover the medication thing so it it's, hiv is treated by something called highly active antiretroviral therapy so this is a combination of treatment so um when we go back to how what hiv is it is this um, retrovirus, so it injects its RNA into the host cell, and then it will use RNA transcriptase as a process for getting this mechanism going. So one of the mechanisms for treating it is by blocking that particular enzyme which does that trick. So there will be an RNA transcriptase inhibitor, for example. There's also protease um, enzymes which are used and so on, so we can block these as well. So basically, um, the problem with HIV treatment would be if you just blocked one of those, the virus is so clever, it mutates so quickly, it would just break through that and then would just become rampant again within the body. So with HIV treatment, what we do is we do multiple blockades and we basically have generally triple, occasionally quadruple therapy. But in a few odd rare cases, it's only dual therapy that we can use in patients um, for stuff that they can tolerate but essentially it's a combination treatment that the patient will be on. So when the patient goes to the clinic, they come back, you get this list of medicines that they're on, you will see three, sometimes four things listed. Be very careful of the patients that are listed on four medications because one of them is generally normally what's called a booster. So it boosts one of the other ingredients to work stronger. And if that's the case, it doesn't just boost that medication. So I've seen in clinic someone who was on one of these quadruple therapies one of them was a booster they were having some erectile dysfunction they were given sildenafil at um, 50 milligrams and they ended up with priaprism 
and they actually felt that that was due to the effects of the booster making this a lot more potent than it could be so if i give you no other information is this when you get that letter from their hiv specialist telling you what medication that they're on code that into your clinical system whether it be emis system one vision whatever you're using code that onto your systems so you will have an inbuilt interaction checker another thing that i would recommend is something called the liverpool interaction checker so you can use this as a web page you can download something called the eye chart onto your mobile phone i download it onto my phone it's great if i have a hiv positive patient who comes in and i want to prescribe them anything i use this you basically put in the ingredients of the hiv medication on one page and then on the next page you put in what medication you want to give them and this will give you a color coded interaction checker Amazing. so green fine to go yellow click on the yellow one it will tell you and you can make a clinical judgment at that stage hmm. and then red is absolutely no no yeah so um code the medication check the latest medication make sure that that's up to date and i actually tell if i have a patient who comes in who is hiv positive i ask them to put that app on their phone mm. so they're empowered mm. if they're going to the chemist and they get a cold and they want to know can i get x y or z can i get to the fed they can check it themselves and they're they're empowered to do that themselves and they don't feel that they're having to go in and and go to one corner and go oh, can i have a word with the with the pharmacist i want to know whether they can have that medication yes. They don't need to. They can just go in themselves, have a look. What ingredient is in this? Oh, yeah, I'll check that. I can take that medication. It's not a problem. Brilliant. It's a really good tool. So I chart for your phones. So that's a, that's the key thing around the medication. Medication now is really safe and very well tolerated. There's a really good picture of what it used to be. It used to be a handful of tablets, like this mountain of tablets, some with yes. food, some without food. And, and this is what put people off. And now generally it's one, two or three tablets a day amazing yeah and the only other thing that i want to briefly say as well if you don't mind yeah, is um any lady who is hiv positive should be offered an annual smear test so if we know that we have a lady who is of the ages of 25 to 65 we should be offering those ladies annual smear tests because of the of the increased risk of the hpv and therefore cervical cancer with these ladies so they should be offered annual smear tests um all hiv positive patients should be offered an annual flu vaccine and they should have received prevnar 13 ah the pneumococcal vaccination and what about things like diabetes because we know that some of the medication can put fat around your middle so i'm conscious as a bane person that there's a higher prevalence of diabetes high blood pressure it's about factoring that into the medications that a person's offered for hiv and then also learning that whole self care management and understanding your med so that my medication is symptoza one tablet a day every day I now understand it has the booster kabikistat I think it is so yep. I have got used to using the interaction checker so that when I go into the store I will check if I want to take proteins in the midst of covid now where you know you can catch that plus flu I've been building up my immune system is the meds that I'm taking going to be okay with that it may not make any difference but in terms of feeling in control of my body and doing the best that I can for myself doing those little things make me feel better and understanding the medication that I take I like the fact that I can look after myself um yeah. but also in terms of dexa bone scans i'm always making sure that the medication i check doesn't thin holistically my hiv medication now looks after the whole of my immune system so i don't see it as something negative i look at it in terms of i've got an artificial supported immune backbone and then i take care of the rest alongside that but the first thing is my immune system is protected and i work with a team of people who help me to do that there on after the best news to any patient is get on with your best life amazing i love it an artificial immune backbone yeah Brilliant. i love that one of the things we were going to ask you um would you mind sharing your experience of getting diagnosed and living with hiv yeah sure um mine's a really messy story emotionally and psychologically but i think because it has been it fuels my reason for working with people living with hiv or the more the normal trajectory is that a person can get the diagnosis 
and then they are supported by the clinician onto the medication. And then in theory, the story is that we live happily ever after and all's well as long as you take the medication. But as we all know, people are fickle and we don't run to plan. So I got the diagnosis in 98 and didn't handle my diagnosis well at all. So I got that on the back of STIs. So I then find out the person I'd slept with um, hasn't been completely honest if they knew. So I have to manage that. I did not go in for a HIV test. So in my mind, it was just routine to rule out HIV. I went in expecting to hear, you haven't got it, just don't be silly again. Instead, I get the life changer. And I get the life changer in 98 in the midst of the storm that is HIV, that is raging at the time where there's a lot of discrimination against people who are gay or people who are sex workers. So there are people who are already marginalised. And I stand in the midst of the storm, but there's a lack of information. The internet isn't doing what it does now. And trying to understand what that means for me as an individual was hard. What I realised I did at the time was to shut down. Apart from the obvious shock, so the ladies just said to me, can you come into this room? You know something's wrong then. That sends the emotions into a spiral. They said to me, you've been tested positive. I get that. And they say, are you OK? And of course, I said, I'm OK. I live alone. I lived alone at that time. I got in my car and drove around for two hours two hours. I can't tell you where I went or what I did. I got into my house and then I just stood in the middle of this empty house and said, I don't want to die. And I was in total shock. I got up the next day and I went to work. And I went to work for 20 years after. And in all of the chaos that I was going through, all I knew was I don't fit in with people who people who have HIV. I'm not supposed to be here. This isn't supposed to be happening to me. I didn't understand the level of shock and the level of grief that I was trying to come to terms with. And then I had to manage telling friends and family that I was HIV positive. I told them and the response wasn't good. So what I had learned from point of diagnosis to my first year living with HIV was isolation and lack of support. And I think what happened to me was I completely emotionally shut down um, and I just lived for two years. And then when those two years came and went and I was still getting on with my life, I thought it was, I think... I went into uh, discrediting the practice, discrediting the test, because I thought, I'm still here. I'm not dead. It must have been a lie. The medication must be wrong. And the reason I'm telling you this is because if you get a patient, know that there will be much going on and why the support services become really, really important, because you cannot assume that a person is going to have a support network to go to. Yeah. And I didn't. I lasted 20 years and then it wasn't until my health started to absolutely decline. Even when it was declining, I didn't then calibrate that it might have been anything to do with my diagnosis in 98. So we're talking about 2015 by the mm -hmm. time my body had finally broken down. I didn't link didn't connect, disconnected completely emotionally, disconnected mentally, disconnected as a black person, didn't want this to be happening to me. This is not my life until I was ill in hospital. They said one of the doctors was just talking to me casually as I'm lay there, still doing a another test. And they said, there's only two things that this can be now. It's either HIV or it's cancer. Mm. I went cold in my body 
because that was the trigger then that this thing that had happened all those years ago has come back to haunt me. So I just said to the doctor, I said, you need to test me again for HIV. And I was frightened because I really didn't want it to be HIV, but neither did I want it to be cancer. And at that point, I was tested and they said I was positive. Discharged from hospital, given an appointment and told to go to the Hathersage where I would be treated. I didn't last 10 days after being discharged from the hospital. I collapsed on New Year's Eve. I was taken to A&E where I waited with all the Christmas revelers. I was then in hospital for six weeks. But once the doctors saw that the HIV meds were working, it was safer to discharge. But the difference in treatment from the first hospital to the Hathersage was a lightning bolt. My concern was there was a lot of distrust of me and there was more questions about my motivation, how I'd got it, why I was living the way I was. What I got when I went to Hathersage was, you're going to be okay and we're going to treat this and you're going to be fine. And every time they walked in, I was treated with dignity and respect and this was about getting me undetectable. I became a patient and not a, an infectious disease carrier, which is how I felt. Yeah. Um, the doctors themselves were on it, expert with being on it and then working with me to try to get me to understand what had happened and what I needed to do in terms of getting well of which there was the referral then to George House Trust. Yeah. I can't express enough how terrified and afraid I was while I was in hospital. And so it's not just your clinician's GP, but it's also the doctors on the ward. It's the nurses. It's about making us feel like people. I've heard so many stories of other people who've been in hospital where they have just been told in a public arena on the ward. And so the rest of the patients then heard the news and you're trying to process in this torrent of fear and confusion what is going on. Yeah. But since being at George House Trust, that has been a game changer for me. It's turned my life completely around how I manage the medication. And I think that's then where... I've started to have to do retrospective grief work and then immediate bereavement work. And it, because then I have to come to terms with how on God's earth could I not understand. So there's been a lot of beating up of myself emotionally. And it's been George House Trust that has had the walk, the journey with me to coming to terms with my diagnosis. And I think that being a mentor has been about saying that as humans, we do the best we can because the world judges us because of our HIV diagnosis and people are afraid, people are uncomfortable because it's contagious, it's infectious and all those languages leave you as a person feeling disgusting and disgusted with yourself. And it's about how do I take that language off me and start seeing a person. So I tell my messy story because I want people to understand that the road to diagnosis isn't always as straight as you get your tablets, you take them and you walk on because sometimes it's about, yeah, I messed up. And what we do now in terms of George House Trust is about giving each individual at whatever stage they are in their life back their personhood, back their self, back their dignity and the ability to love yourself again. And that can even mean managing the sexual dysfunction because contrary to the media, once you get an HIV diagnosis, you do not want to go around infecting people. A lot of us have not had a sexual or intimate relationship since diagnosis and that's a tragedy because we have the message, you equals you. If we are on medication, we become undetectable and we can't transmit. Yeah. 
And so we work really hard. I work really hard at trying to turn that around. Mentally, I'm in a better place because I understand my meds, but I also understand the emotional journey that it takes to get to a place where I am in control of my body and I understand the choices that I want to make with my life. But I couldn't have done that without the long-term support or the counselling or the support of other HIV-positive people who live as examples of how you should be living because you shut down so much by watching other people, hearing them talk, by seeing them fight politically, I learned that it's not okay to treat me or other people with HIV badly and that we demand the right to a quality of life that is akin to any patient who would walk through anybody's doors. And it took me 20 years in the dark and five years in the light to begin to understand that, to feel that, but importantly, to claim it. So it's incredibly important for me when I do the work at George House Trust that I demonstrate what healthy looking looks like because if you get a patient, more often than not, they will think they're going to die and you will have patients who do not want to take their medication for fear of the side effects. Now, I don't come in as an angel. I come in as a woman who's living her best life with HIV. So I want them to see me living. Women see another woman living glowing in happy relationships with meds that are stable that take all of my isms and schisms into consideration and allow me then to get on with my life whatever that wants to be and to change but be vibrant and know that I'm planning on being here till 85 95 105 we still fight the stigma but I want people to know that I fight it because I'm healthy, because I can, and because I can make those choices. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing. It's really powerful. Yeah. Okay. Um, So just as a kind of summary or a bit of a recap of some of the things you've already mentioned, what do you feel are the important messages to get across to primary care or healthcare professionals in general? My one important message for primary care clinicians is to normalise a HIV test as part of a normal investigation for any of these index conditions, particularly if you work in Greater Manchester, Greater Manchester or Greater London or Greater Brighton or Greater Birmingham. These are all the areas where, which are of, of, of high prevalence. Um, and if you're not sure whether you're in an area of high prevalence, it's really easy to check on the Public Health England fingertips table. So you can put in fingertips, HIV in Google, and then you can check your area. If you're one of these areas, which is more than two per thousand, even if you practically can't work out the new patients, every patient going into hospital, I wouldn't want us as primary care physicians to miss any of these index conditions. Mm. The, there are actually now a number of cases going through medical legally where it has been missed mm. because they weren't offered these tests. So really, because you might be thinking you're trying to avoid a difficult conversation with the patient, is a much more difficult conversation years later with their relatives because we didn't offer them a HIV test and um, we're waiting for the outcome of this but um, there's a a serious prevention of further harm report going on with some coroners nationally because the HIV diagnosis have been missed. So my key message is if they have the index symptoms it's just a routine investigation for it. Let's just do it, let's not make anything of it, it's a routine investigation. If in doubt, just test. And I'd say whether we're in a high indexed area or not, just test. If you're not sure, if they keep coming back with symptoms that are not going away and you're starting to scratch your head, just test. It either comes back negative or positive and we can move on from both results, but test. Because the sooner you test, the person knows and it's about we can deal with this and you can still get on with your life. So it's normalised, but you can't normalise what you don't understand. So I've got a list of some of the websites too, because you're going to be saying to somebody, you're HIV positive. And one of the things I struggled with is, I don't see anybody who looks like me out there. 
you need to be able to support gay men, trans people who are positive too, Mm -hmm. black women, white women, old women, heterosexual, bisexual. So it's understanding the language of HIV because it brings in more than just a diagnosis. It challenges our notions of sexuality. But first of all, you're a professional delivering primary or first good care. Get up to date with HIV yourself by looking at some of the websites because sometimes a clinician or a GP who knows enough about HIV can understand why a patient is reticent to take care. If you understand the emotional impact of HIV, you can ask questions to your patient that makes them aware that at an emotional level you do understand what they're going through Mm -hmm. and that you can work with them to support them in their best health. That's brilliant. Thank you so much, Yvonne, for that information and in general for um, for everyone speaking to us today. It's been a real privilege to hear from everyone and um, it's been a really, really interesting um, episode to be part of. No problem. It's been a pleasure. So thanks very much to Marlon and Yvonne for talking to us. There were so many great points that they made during our talk with them. Lisa, do you want to start with your learning points? Yes, I can fire away. Um, I think just to say at the start, I was just reflecting there that it's a it's a really nice, I think, overview of HIV because going through medicine and then GP training, you tend to get the standard um, flow of a teaching session where it's the diagnosis, the management, the side effects, the legal aspect. You know, there's always that format Um, and I think it was really nice um, in this one instead to pick out the nuggets of information and and kind of take a higher level look at HIV um, and and things that we can really transform our care and primary care with Um, and then also hearing Yvonne's point of view um, was just invaluable really yeah but yeah so what's what's on my list for other learning points I think it was it was just that real hammer home of make it make it routine like just make it a normal test. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've got a high prevalence that greater than two per thousand, then try and make it part of your new patient screening. I know it's really, really difficult and it's hard to set up those processes in primary care, but you might just increase your levels and then you might make that um, diagnosis in someone early enough for it to make a really big difference. Yeah, exactly. Um, I actually, as a junior doctor, did have a job in infectious diseases. Um, so I did see a fair amount of people with HIV, but it's so easy to slip back into not testing or not thinking about yeah. HIV as part of your differentials. So it was really good to have that message highlighted again and going through the index conditions with Marlon where, you know, I was thinking about those potential opportunities for testing, like with peripheral neuropathy or transverse myelitis or even pneumonia, where that you know it's not necessarily right at the forefront of your thinking that was that was great and then I guess getting involved in this episode in general has meant becoming more aware of the great work that's been done in Manchester um around campaigning around HIV so there's one campaign that they were talking about with the tagline let's sort this together which is one of the big Manchester campaigns and that really brings home the message that we all have a role to play in thinking about HIV and how how we can help with access to testing and getting people access to services as well but yeah so that was really nice to think of it as part of the bigger picture of Manchester Um, but yeah in my head I'm going to put the blood box for HIV right next to the one for diabetes so I'm thinking about it that routinely that's a really good point yeah like I said it is just it's that normalizing it it's just it's just like an HbA1c really Um, and the, I think it was also that reflection on taking the time to deliver that um, diagnosis appropriately. So even though it might take you that little bit longer, getting the support set up, knowing that you've spoken to the HIV clinic or you've got George House Trust on board can really make that difference. Um, as Yvonne said, with, with getting a patient to engage with their diagnosis longer yeah. term. Um, and then I think finally for me, it was that um, bit as well about empowering patients. So getting them involved in their management a little bit with things like the interaction checker and getting them to take ownership. I think that's a really important part of of all conditions, but I hadn't really considered it with an HIV. So that was a really nice point that um, that they made. Yeah, absolutely. There's so many good resources, definitely. And we'll make sure they're all as links in the episode description. I took a lot from what Yvonne said. I really appreciated her taking us through the psychology of the journey of getting a diagnosis of HIV, sort of living in survival mode with it and actually coming to terms with it. Not only that, then the work that she's doing now with George's House Trust as a positive advocate, 
is incredible she was talking about some of the programs that they're doing and just what an incredible message that is because not going through it we we can't really fully understand what it's like but Mm. we can definitely help people on the way and like she said being there for patients when they need them and then making sure that straight through the door like on on our websites or on our in our waiting rooms that we've got information there that lets people know they're welcome yeah yeah completely agree so if you'd like to get in touch with us there's several ways you can either email us so our email address is primarycarepodcasts at gmail.com or we're on twitter and our handle is at pckb podcast yep oh yes and we've also got our survey should we plug every time and we put a link in the episode description and it only takes about a minute but it just gives us a little bit more of a flavor um, of what you're thinking of the episodes um, and we love it when we get an email saying someone's filled that in so if you want to do that that would be great yeah and we're working on some of the suggestions there as well that people have handed in so thank you for those yep. we are paying attention till next time on primary care knowledge boost Hey guys, just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. They were recorded in Greater Manchester in 2020. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before making treatment decisions. Uh, The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode.